Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. Since the liberalization of the Indian economy in 1991, successive governments have attempted to reform the nation's agricultural sector. However, these efforts have led to few breakthroughs, preserving an institutional structure that has failed both to improve farmer welfare and agricultural production. Yet, the current government's attempts to address some of these issues through a series of farm laws has sparked fierce debate and protests. While some analysts hail the reforms as a game changer, others note that the new system perpetuates old flaws, albeit under a different guise. In this episode of Interpreting India, we analyze India's agricultural sector and the impact of the new farm laws. Can these laws effectively tackle the main issues confronting India's agrarian economy? Why have these laws stoked so much protest across certain farmer groups? And finally, how will the agricultural landscape change if these laws were to be properly implemented? Joining us today to discuss these issues is Mekhala Krishnamurthy. Mekhala is a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research and associate professor of sociology and anthropology at Ashoka University. She is also a non-resident visiting scholar at the Center for the Advanced Study of India at the University of Pennsylvania. Mekhala was educated at Harvard University, the University of Cambridge, and at University College London, where she completed her PhD in anthropology as a UCL Global Excellence Scholar. Mekala's research, publications, policy, and professional engagements have involved work across a range of field sites and subjects, including women's courts and dispute resolution, community health workers and public health systems, agriculture and agricultural markets, and land, water, and livelihood security. Mekala, welcome to Interpreting India. Great to have you with us today. Thanks, Srinath. It's great to be here. Let's start with a little bit of a background. Could you perhaps give us a, a capsule account, really, of the evolution of India's agricultural policies? What is the role of the markets? Uh, how has the agricultural landscape in, in the public policy sense evolved over the sort of long period of independence, but perhaps a shorter period since liberalization as well? Great, sure. Um, you know, so India's agriculture um, agricultural sector is very vast and complex, and agricultural policy also has many different dimensions. So, of course, uh, for many many years, the focus has been on agricultural production, um, and you know. Also, it began with a strong focus on land, land reform, uh, then a move to really paying attention to issues of agricultural production, especially during the Green Revolution. The focus was very much um, on increasing yields and productivity. Um, and, um, you know, but throughout this period, there has been a very strong focus also on thinking about agricultural markets. Uh, and that's actually where the current debate is really focused. Um, so so to give you, uh, you know, a little bit of a sense of um, where agricultural markets come into the story, um, you know, we have to go back to a colonial uh, period. Now, Indian agricultural uh, marketing law 
was first most formally mentioned in the Royal Commission on Agriculture, and that was 1928. Uh, and it's interesting because Lilith Gao, who actually um, was in charge of that committee, actually had been charged with doing a very similar exercise in London uh, with the very unruly wheat and meat markets there. So basically, this is where the idea of local market committees and properly regulated local marketplaces really takes hold. Um, and they were older provincial laws that, uh, you know, sort of uh, focused on this as well. And then over um, since independence, there's been a lot of development uh, and focus on these committees. So the idea really was that you needed to have state laws. Agriculture itself was seen as a state subject. Agricultural marketing has always been seen as a state subject. So what you start seeing in the planning, you know, the different plans that come uh, from the 1950s onward is a focus on development, promotion and development of local agricultural markets, of what we now know as APMCs, which come under state law. And the idea was that because there's so much diversity and that these markets are so deeply embedded in local contexts and specific commodity contexts, that you would actually have these committees, which are sort of seen as quite democratic committees of representation with farmers and local traders uh, and even with uh, labor um, and local representatives who would be involved at managing these market yards uh, in different parts of the country. Uh, but the overall legislation would be provincial uh, in the colonial times and then state legislation uh, in post-colonial India. So that is the sort of, in a sense, the origin of the species of agricultural markets. Um, I think it's worth just making one brief point here that the thinking behind this was that, you know, you India has a very, very large number of small farmers. Um, and um, in this context, in local markets, you have a tendency towards monopsonies, where there will be a few local buyers in any regional market. Um, and so the idea was that if you created physical market sites where farmers could take their produce and engage in a kind of regulated exchange with a private actor where the state would regulate the market yard and what you would have there is a, ideally an auction you would have you know, some standardization of weights and measures. You would have um, payment settlement laws and practices. And then you would have on-site dispute resolution that this would give farmers better bargaining power than they would have in bilateral exchange, bilateral unregulated exchange outside Mondays. So this is actually the regulatory thinking um, that has taken hold over many, many years um, and gave the sort of sense of why many of the state marketing laws have this similar principle, right? So you will see this system reproduce itself across different state acts. Um, but of course, some states chose not to do it. So notably, Kerala in the 1960s decided that they didn't need agricultural produce marketing committees because they had largely plantation crops um, and were dependent actually on imports from other states for many of their other food needs. Um, and so they had a system where they set up and functioned under commodity boards instead. So not all states had the same system, but across many states, you at least saw a similar kind of law uh, with quite specific uh, differences, right, um, in, in depending on the commodities uh, that are grown in those areas and uh, the way in which markets were actually 
notified and regulated was very different. So it happened in waves in different states at different times. These markets started coming up. Some states did a very poor job of actually implementing these laws. And so you see very few market committees on the ground. Other states, um, you know, in a rush, like in the 60s, 70s, you'll see many markets come up. Uh, in the case of Punjab and Haryana, where they already had actually a history of um, this kind of marketing system and mandis before, these mandis got really strengthened with the Green Revolution and became major sites for government procurement of wheat and paddy. So, you know, it's really a very, very diverse um, sort of story um, across the country. At the moment, we have something around 6,500 to 7,000 regulated agricultural produce market committees, of which only 2,500 are principal markets. The others are sub-market yards connected to them. So although this policy has been in place for a very long time and these laws have existed, committee after committee has pointed out that we have far too few agricultural marketing uh, committees or mandis uh, functioning around the country. Um, so you know, I can get into more details, but let me stop here. Okay, that's great. And you mentioned that this is an issue which has been sort of, you know, people have been thinking about it, committees have looked at it from various aspects. And just before we start talking a little bit more in detail about the current set of laws that the government has sort of introduced, I just want to know, is the story of Mandis to the overall story of Indian agriculture? In a sense, is this the silver bullet that is going to lead to broader sectoral reforms? Or do you see it as one thing, as a part of a cluster of things which will hopefully get triggered if we got on this track? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's such an important question. So, as I said, you know, initially there was a lot of focus on land and then there's been a lot of focus on production. Um, and many people have pointed out that, you know, that made a lot of sense at a time when really food grain production and food security was a huge problem. And that India has moved as a whole uh, into food grain surplus. And, uh, you know, we now surplus producing country where focus on markets becomes extremely important. Uh, so, uh, there is, no, I, I think, there is no doubt that uh, the attention to markets and to agricultural marketing systems is extremely welcome. Uh, there's also no doubt that this focus now that has come on farmers' incomes to, you know, in that story uh, and and that policy shift, which has moved from just thinking about the farm to thinking about the farmer, uh, the focus has been on incomes, and there again, the role of markets is critical. Uh, so I think uh, this is no doubt an overdue um, focus. However, you know, it's important to understand that on the ground, and this is actually one reason that agricultural marketing has been considered a state subject, uh, it's very difficult to disentangle production and exchange and consumption. Right. Often in the same unit, multiple things are happening. So we found in fieldwork on the ground and particularly in Bihar and Orissa, but in across many states, farmers also almost immediately after harvest, depending on if it's a food grain, uh, retain quite a lot of the produce for self-consumption. Uh, in you know Bihar and Orissa, we found sometimes only about 40 to 60%, in some cases, only 20% of farmers had marketable surplus, that is surplus that they sold in the market. So we must remember that agriculture is still an important source of food security for some producers. Many cultivators have a mix where they keep some of their grain for food security and for own consumption, and then they sell uh, some of it. And then many are actually just producing and engaging deeply with markets as surplus producers or 
taking cash crops, etc. So again, you see a lot of variation. Um, and therefore, while markets are important, I think it's incredibly important to understand them in the context of the larger agricultural system, where production, marketing, processing, distribution and consumption are actually interlinked in practice. And it all sounds very technical and complex, but if you actually go to the ground, it's abundantly obvious because inputs, you need credit to take inputs. Inputs are part of the production cycle. You may take credit and sell to the same person you took credit from. You may sell to someone else, but you still have you know, a certain kind of household economics that you're um, working with, you need many to sell in order to take the next crop because you need to buy inputs for the next crop. Um, so as soon as you sort of get on the ground, uh, the connections become very obvious, which is why often reforms in agricultural marketing has failed because we've sort of thought we will reform the market, you know, remove certain intermediaries, uh, rationalize it without realizing some of these other connections, which are extremely tenacious and uh, important important for farmers because this is what allows the entire system to function. So um, I, I absolutely think agricultural marketing is critical, but I think without seeing it in the context of the larger agricultural system, sometimes what happens is we misidentify the problem or we think that something is easier to solve. Um, and that's actually been one of the reasons why market reforms are so difficult, so critical to undertake, but so difficult to actually achieve. Right. And what is the government trying to do with these laws now? I mean, if you could sort of take us to the nub of the matter, so to speak. Yeah. So uh, the the three laws that have been brought in um, are, you know, many people see them as a set. Uh, each of these issues has been discussed, um, you know, independently as well. They've been brought in together. So they're also read together. Um, you know, the first law, which is actually the most uh, controversial, is this law called the Farmers uh, Produce Trade and Commerce um, Act. And it's FPTC. And some people call it the Mundi Bypass Act. Um, the second is a law on contract farming. And the third is an amendment to the Essential Commodities Act that lifts, um, you know, the, having stock limits and allows, um, you know, traders, FPOs, others to stock their produce without limits and has certain conditions for when, you know, the state might enter these, um, you know, and, and put some conditions on exchange. Um, so, um, and on so stocking, sorry. So uh, the three laws uh, together are seen as a way to open up the agricultural marketing system. So as I said earlier, the idea was that India would have a system of regulated agricultural markets. And these were set up with the idea that, you know, the state would um, initially, in order to develop them, restrict formal regulated exchange to the mandis itself, right, to the market yard. And so although you have a larger market area, the any larger trader or, um, you know, processor would have to take a license from the mandi, from the APMC, and buy and sell and transact in the market yard itself. Now, importantly, this never actually applied to farmers. So farmers were never restricted. They could sell anywhere. And as we know that a very large amount of produce across different commodities actually doesn't enter mandis at all. Um, 
and a large amount is not brought by farmers directly to mandis even if the produce comes so farmers have actually exchanged outside mandis um, informally for a very long time they usually sell to intermediaries or aggregators who sometimes come to mandis or sometimes sell directly in other channels so um the laws used to restrict buyers to the market area now since i would say about 20 years and the government has been saying this as well that these laws are you know reflect reform debates that have been happening for 20 years so since you know 2000 there has been a very clear sense that this was restrictive that um, while they were important to establish mandis and to create them in certain areas in the country that restricting all trade to the mandi is not a good idea and so for years there's been this idea and there have been two model acts that the government both nda governments in 2003 and then in 2018 or 2017 was the second one that they brought to um you know encourage states to amend their acts wherever their acts exist to um allow corporations private actors to take licenses to either set up their own procurement channels outside the mandi um and also to uh, participate in contract farming it also allowed private buyers to set up their own private markets so you could have single license hubs where you yourself bought or set up private markets um and you know not interestingly even before this law was brought in the central law it's important to remember that by the government's own latest records uh 27 of the 28 states that had apmc laws had made many of these critical changes so particularly in terms of allowing single licenses for the whole state a single point of levying of taxation and fees and a single uh, <clears throat> and also allowing direct marketing to happen outside many states had contract farming laws we know punjab has been doing this for many years like decades uh, tamil nadu as well has had a very developed contract farming law for some time now so um states had already made many of these changes um so the central law is in a way you know taking forward um that idea that is what they are trying to achieve which is to say that the the narrative basically is that the states didn't do a comprehensive enough job they didn't do a fast enough job um and what we now need is to build a national agricultural market um and so that's what this has gone towards i think it's important to remember that we do have a physically a national agricultural market produce moves across india and it has moved across india and the world for a very long time but the idea was to rationalize it to remove barriers uh to trade etc so that is why the government has also brought it in as trade and commerce but importantly two of these three uh which are the fptc and the contract farming law are not strictly about trade and commerce right they are actually about marketing because it's the first transaction between farmers and buyers that actually come under regulation and this is why so many people have said that these are actually a central laws on a state subject because marketing was always thought of as part of agriculture because the farmers first sale and because i was telling you earlier it's deeply connected to the production system as well uh these this first primary markets were always left to the states so it's the first time in indian legislative history that we have a central law on the first transaction 
and on agricultural marketing, um, but they're seen as laws that are trying to bring about this change, right? Open up options for farmers so that they can now operate elsewhere by allowing buyers to operate freely in the money. Farmers, as I said, were always free to operate, but they were constrained by a whole range of other factors that had to do with their farm sizes, production conditions, access to markets, etc. Um, the laws are, you know, saying that now by allowing buyers to operate freely outside mundis, um, to have, you know, tax-free zones, market-free free zones outside, it opens up more competition and better competitive options for farmers. Okay. And you mentioned that many states had attempted some variant of some of these reforms at various points of time. So I was just wondering, I mean, do you think the experience of some of these states is perhaps a uh, an indicator of what exactly we could expect at a national level as well if these laws were to be implemented properly? Yes. So absolutely. So I think there are three quick points I'd like to make. The first is given the extent to which states had already made amendments and changes in their laws um, for for agricultural marketing, um, there's an important question as to whether we needed a central law in this subject, right? Because the conditions are so varied and because states have very different conditions, both of the development of agricultural production and marketing, um, they would be best placed to understand how they should adapt and bring about these laws. So I, while there was movement, I think it's extremely important uh, to ask whether it really was needed that we have a central law. Um, and I do think that perhaps we were coming to a point where it is important to have some kind of framework, institutional framework, whether legal or not, to think about interstate trade issues, um, questions where you need greater coordination and consensus between states, uh, perhaps on taxation, certainly on questions of you know, storage and stock limits, where decisions by one state affect either producers or consumers in other states. Right. And we don't have a formal mechanism, a formal institutional mechanism for taking on those issues. So I think, uh, you know, even within this government, there had been this question earlier as well that should we have an interstate council for agriculture? Um, I think that would actually be something that would be very important going forward. Uh, these laws don't bring that in. In some ways, that would have been a more um, sensible place for the, the center to have brought a framework, you know, which is to actually see how you can bring about better center state and interstate coordination. I think agricultural marketing law, um, you know, both constitutionally, but also in terms of practical practically in terms of institutional arrangements was best left to the states who have to in any case lead this development. Um, but to answer your question, um, which is the second point, is that we have learned a lot about, um, you know, different experiments by different states. And one of the key things that you realize is that just opening up the mandi and allowing options for private sector to operate outside does not necessarily mean that you see the you know, crowding in of private sector investments. Um, and when I say private sector here, I mean organized, corporate, large-scale private sector. Um, so, you know, Bihar is often cited as an example where the repealing of the Mandi Act was supposed to bring in private sector investments all the way to the farm gate. And really, we haven't seen that happen. What you did see happen was the deterioration of public infrastructure uh, because now the state was no longer responsible for it. And you saw a deterioration of existing 
existing market infrastructure. But you didn't see private infrastructure and private investment come in at the farm gate level. The private sector, you know, continued to buy from larger traders and intermediaries, set up some warehouses, but they weren't really at the farm gate. And that's because you can imagine in a state like Bihar, where you have millions of small and marginal farmers, is going to be incredibly expensive and high transaction costs for the corporations to operate at that level. So um, that's one experience. The other is in a state like Madhya Pradesh, which actually you know amended its act to allow companies like ITC to buy outside the mandi by taking licenses and setting up procurement centers. Um, you know, all the way up in early two thousands, so two thousand four, five, these centers were already functioning. Uh, you saw that in places where you had good mandis, uh, you saw good competition. Right, the mandis also improved their systems, improved their processes, and farmers. Some farmers who were in the ITC network work also got the option uh, to sell at ITC. What happened there, though, and it's true of both private hubs and public procurement, that these are seasonal hubs. Right? They tend to come in based on their own commercial requirements at different times uh, in the season and to buy certain crops at certain qualities. And that's perfectly understandable because they are commercial entities. They have a reason to actually transact with farmers. Whereas Mondays were multi-buyer, all-year-round, multi-commodity markets. So they had a slightly different function. So they were just not just an alternative channel. They functioned as the benchmark for price discovery in the local area. They were public, so all kinds of sizes of farmers um, could you know, go and all sizes of buyers also, right? So you had an auction and that allowed you to discover prices better. So we've also seen that happen. In Karnataka, they've actually interlinked all their mandis. They've, it's been an interesting process of reform to amend their acts, to allow, uh, you know, to, to actually enable auctions to go online um, and with the idea that that will actually improve further price discovery and regulation of markets. Um, and what you see there is interesting. You don't see as much inter-district inter trade even, right? So inter-mandi trade you don't see. Like each Monday now has moved its auctions from manual tendering to online, but there's still very little inter-district. And that's the same thing that's happening even with ENAM, uh, the government's own program, which has brought a certain number of over 500 Mondays online. Um, you're not seeing much inter-district, inter-state uh, buying. And that is because, you know, these markets require... A, good deal of intermediation and things like price, you know, not just price discovery, but quality, assaying, logistics. So intermediaries play a very important role. Um, so I think the lesson from this is that uh, if you have good baseline regulation and good primary markets, these alternative channels can work quite well. And they do bring about competition and greater options. The second lesson I think is that disintermediation is not really it's kind of a misguided goal to go in to disintermediate unless you can competently, um, you know, meet the, the, the actual role and, and replace the role that those intermediaries play, which are really very critical economic roles in these kinds of markets. Um, and so that's the second big lesson. Um, and, you know, importantly, it's, it's really important to say that even after all these years of allowing private sector buying at the Monday level in many, many states, um, the penetration is low. Uh, you don't see them as the primary buyers, the kind of consolidation by agribusiness taking over, you know, key markets 
um, hasn't happened. Um, and that is because they continue to buy, you know, primarily at the Mundi or even, you know, uh, not so much at the farm gate level. And so contract farming experiments have remained relatively small scale. Um, there have been good experiments and there have been bad experiences. So there's a lot of learning about what kind of system would work well. Um, and I think the larger lesson is that while we thought our markets are really, really inefficient and there's lots of this low-hanging fruit, when you speak to corporations, they often tell you that these markets are hyper-efficient, that this is a high-volume, low-margin business, and it doesn't make sense for them to build assets deep in the market unless they are actually in all parts of the channel um, you know, and have much greater in um, participation across the agro-commercial channel. So um, those are some, you know, interesting, important, but also sobering lessons for those who think that, you know, opening this up will mean that there will be some sort of private sector transformation. Um, I'll make one final quick point. Uh, you know, this is something we've also talked about so much, um, is that, you know, I think the imagination of the private sector in India, when we say the private sector will come in, is we mean large-scale corporates. It's important to remember that Indian agricultural markets are overwhelmingly private, but it is MSMEs and SMEs, uh, whether you're talking about traders, millers, wholesalers, retailers, who dominate this market. So it is already a dynamic private market, a site of exchange and livelihood for many millions of people, in, you know, farmers, of course, but also other um, actors in the system. Um, but and, and it's largely private, but it's small scale private. Fascinating. So, Mikla, you talked already about, you know, concerns about corporatization, etc. And we've seen, you know, protests now lasting to several weeks uh, by, you know, uh, very large groups of farmers, particularly in North Northwest India. Uh, and and many of the things that you know we hear in terms of what the sort of vocabulary of the protest is and what the concerns are seem somewhat orthogonal to the kinds of you know detailed policy discussions and learnings that you are laying out here. You know, there we are hearing a lot more about uh, what's going to happen to the minimum support pricing system, right? And we are recording this on eighth of February, and just this afternoon, the prime minister has made a very categorical statement saying that you know that is here to stay and that you know no one need harbor any concerns about that and so on. The second set of issues which have been really in front and center in terms of at least the, 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 you know, the, the vocabulary of the protest has been this concern that big businesses could take over the entire sort of supply chain of agriculture and monopolize it to the detriment of farmers and so on. So I'm just wondering, you know, how do these um, sort of concerns by these uh, groups of agricultural sort of laborers and farmers relate to the kinds of policy issues that you've been focusing on. And what do you think is the way forward, given that, you know, this now seems to be something of an impasse uh, as far as this whole thing is concerned? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, let me take two, uh, let me answer this in two ways. So the first is that um, if we focus on the laws itself, and interestingly, you know, again, in Parliament on, on Friday, the minister agriculture is that, you know, nobody has been able to articulate what is wrong with the laws, right? Um, actually wrong with the laws. Now, I think it's important to point out three departures that the laws represent. Uh, the first departure um, is that this is a central law on a state subject. 
So I think that is extremely important to understand that a central law on a state subject is not just a process issue. You know, you should have consulted the states. Uh, it's actually an institutional framework issue, which brings you to the second point, because, you know, you have created for the first time uh, because you did not because the center could not step on the toes of the state. The law is a very funny law that I'm talking particularly to the FPTC, which creates these trade areas outside regulated market areas, wherever regulated market areas exist. So, you know, contrary to what was being thought of up until now, which was the idea of a comprehensive framework for opening up mandis and allowing decent regulatory framework and infrastructure, and then multiple options for farmers, what you've actually created is some a strange regulatory fragmentation where if a state has a Mundi Act, then the sites under those Mundi Acts, whether those are public sites like APMCs or private buyers who have taken licenses under those acts, those acts are all called, those sites are all called market areas. All around them now you have trade areas. So it's not just two regulatory zones, right? One which is trade area and the other is market area. In different states, you have trade and market areas of different kinds. So in a state like Bihar, which had no APMC Act, now the whole state is a trade area. In other states, you have some parts of the state which will come under state regulation and other parts which will now be free under the Central Act. So the second major thing, so first it's a Central Act uh, on the state subject. The second is that as a result of that, it has actually created regulatory fragmentation, multiplicity of regulatory regimes, not just two, but many across different states. And this is, in my view, not great for anybody who wants to operate. Uh, it actually creates more regulatory confusion than clarification and um, simplicity. So that's the second point. And the third, which is something people have been saying for quite a long time, is that since these acts came, is that they mark a fairly serious departure in what we consider good regulatory infrastructure or good regulatory principles. So, uh, you know, it allows anybody with a PAN card, for example, to trade in these free areas. It doesn't allow states to uh, levy any market fees or taxes in these areas. Um, but also it has a very different dispute resolution system. You know, the Mundi system was created so that you could have on the spot dispute resolution. Here it is SDMs, the subdivisional magistrate, and then if that fails, the collector who in 30 days has to set up a conciliation board. Um, some very basic things like, you know, being able to ensure counterparty risk. So how do you, uh, you know, uh, pre prevent traders from absconding without paying farmers? These things have not been worked out. So while you have a system um, you know, there, there is some idea of what dispute resolution should look like. Uh, people have really pointed out that these are unlikely to work on the ground uh, because it's like district level, you know, um, administrators and administrators who are very busy and don't have the time to address many of the issues and urgency uh, with the urgency required. So there are actually design flaws. Um, others have pointed out, you know, people who have studied contract farming, Many confusions, definitional ambiguities and confusions that have arisen in the laws, whether it's about the attachment to land, which has caused a lot of discomfort with farmers, or even just definitions of, you know, farmers versus FPOs. It treats FPOs, farmer producer organizations, as farmers. 
the beginning of third party service providers. So these are confusions that you know those who have studied contract farming say could definitely have been avoided had the laws been you know more carefully worked out. And that earlier uh, iterations and renditions of corporate you know this contract farming laws have been better than what has finally been brought in. So I think the first issue is that these are major departures, even in terms of regulatory quality and the regulatory framework. This is important because many people have ended up saying that, you know, there's nothing wrong with the laws. It's just turned into a political issue and people are agitated about things that the laws say nothing about. So I think that brings me to the second point, which is that what are farmers... What has been at the heart of the farmers' concern is that the new laws, um, you know, weaken the agricultural produce market committees, the APMC Mondays, um, and the second is that they will lead to the withdrawal of the MSP, uh, the minimum support price um, for particularly, I mean, which is most um, prevalent in Punjab and Haryana for wheat and paddy, but affects the number of farmers across the country. So these, this has become the response. Now, the government has repeatedly said that this, you know, the laws don't do this. They don't say anything about weakening the Mandi system. And they don't say anything about the MSP, which one should recall, although one of the most important interventions in terms of uh, certainly political imagination and public uh, imagination, um, has never had a law. It has always been a policy in the process. So uh, that is actually what has taken attention. And I think it's important, at least for my, and what I see it is that, you know, these laws come in a context. Um, people don't just read the law for what it says, but what people understand its intention to be. And when they were introduced, they were introduced as liberating farmers from corrupt APMCs, from creating tax-free areas and free trade areas so that farmers and trade could move outside APMCs. We have seen over the last few months reports from some states, Karnataka, Madhya Pradesh, about APMCs struggling now to have adequate uh, revenue for whatever reason, it's not clear that it's because of this entirely. It's also during COVID time. So we don't know what has happened in these markets entirely. But uh, certainly people I've spoken to in those states say that, you know, trade traders, others are now operating outside. Um, and this has weakened the APMC's ability to raise its own revenue um, and therefore, you know, take care of itself. So there is a sense that they may wither away over time. At least the smaller ones will disappear and then the larger ones will have to find other ways and other revenue uh, generation mechanisms. Um, and for the MSP, likewise, uh, although there is nothing been said about the MSP in the laws, uh, there has been a very important process underway for many years, big debate, very high profile with government reports and others saying that the MSP has to be reformed, uh, that it has to be reduced. Um, and, and that is, I think, what farmers are reacting to that this move is really a move systematically to move towards dismantling APMCs and um, MSP. And, and that is where the anxieties are coming from. Um, ironically, I think, you know, this is really sad because Indian agricultural markets and farmers, particularly in states like Punjab and Haryana, did need deep reform on the MSP system. Uh, there is an important challenge that they are facing diversification of crops and um, you know they have to change these things and, and this is something they know and and they would be I think the first to say is a serious issue 
Um, but now having brought these laws, and I just again to just go back to the original point, that if you have central laws, you will have everybody coming to the center to place many different kinds of anxieties and concerns. Um, and you will have many others not coming to the center because they may not even recognize that any change has happened because uh, it may be a very long time, if at all, that these laws even make a difference in the lives of small farmers in other states. So um, I don't think we can say that if farmers are not protesting, they are pro-law. Uh, you can't say that what they are protesting entirely is the sum and substance of the law, but certainly what they perceive to be the direction of it. Um, and, you know, if you had had, for the years that I've studied these um, markets, states have farmers protest quite regularly, having to do with how their agricultural markets function. Uh, it's just for the first time at this scale, you're seeing it at the center because it's the first time the central law, which has brought with it a huge number of anxieties. Right. And what do you think is the way forward, Mikla? I mean, obviously, that's perhaps a political question, not so much a policy question, but but do you think... Uh, there is any kind of uh, via media which might actually have beneficial effects coming out of this piece of legislation uh, with uh, a set of other institutional mechanisms and assurances, so to speak? So, you know, personally, I mean, my sense, both for policy and for politics, is that, I mean, so there is a challenge. So, as you said, this is a political negotiation between the farmers' unions and the central government. Um, the offer that has been made even of, say, suspending the laws is something that everybody is awaiting clarity in terms of the process. So we're now in really unprecedented territory because it is not clear how one can suspend laws that have already been notified. So the reluctance of the farmers unions to accept that represents both, I think, a loss of trust and faith. And, you know, this is a big trust deficit. But it also reflects uh, unprecedented territory because one is not clear what it means to suspend laws for a certain amount of time. It seems that it's possible that even to suspend them, you have to then repeal and introduce some new legislation or you have to introduce an amendment in parliament. So there's a really com complicated zone now of figuring out what could be the actual way forward because even suspension is not clear and the Supreme Court hasn't yet taken up the question of constitutional validity. So that would, you know, that's again hanging. And until this is re resolved, what we are seeing is a great deal of, there's a turf war in certain states where states have also issued their own laws against this you know, they're declaring more areas as market areas under their Mundi Act. So what you're seeing is regulatory uh, turf war and um, ambiguity. And that is not good for anybody, not farmers, not traders, not corporations or others who may want to come in So for any of the stakeholders in these markets. Um, and so I think as soon as possible, this needs to get resolved. Um, I would say that the only way really forward is to recommit to a process of agricultural market reform that really brings the states back into the heart of the reforms process. This needs to be a process that is led by the states. Um, and um, so I would actually say, you know, letting the states lead the development and reforms of agricultural markets at the primary level having the center play a much greater role in thinking about both center state and interstate coordination. Um, but most of all, what you said, which is actually focused on investments. Uh, these markets, our research has shown that, you know, it's not really 
you know, these just market reforms. It is deep investments in, you know, the right parts, well-directed public investments in the agricultural marketing ecosystem. So, you know, it's really important to build up infrastructure. It's really important to focus and deliver on building up uh, farmers' collectives and farmers' organizations, improving Mundi infrastructure, the infrastructure of rural periodic hearts, um, you know, really getting those things, the infrastructure working. Um, and, and infrastructure here is a living, breathing part of these systems. So it's really critical. And, you know, as we've seen, private you know, investment doesn't just come in unless there is strong public investment, which then provides multipliers, then it crowds in private investment and transforms. So I actually think it's the, the problem is reducing agriculture to a legal problem uh, is extremely reductive and will help nobody at all. So I think moving back from the laws to thinking about policy and a framework for policy and investment should be the way forward. On that sober and thoughtful note, Mikula, thanks so much for uh, taking the time out to be with us today. It, it really was very good to chat with you. Thanks a lot, Srinath. With this episode, we conclude season one of Interpreting India. We are taking a short break to repackage ourselves for a new season in which my colleagues from Carnegie India will be joining me in bringing the most important discussions on foreign policy, technology, and the economy to you. We will be back after a few weeks in a new form, but do stay tuned. To know more about the research we do, you can visit our website, carnegieindia.org or any of our social media pages. Until then, stay safe and thank you for listening.